Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we are very, very excited about our special guest, as, you know, we always are when somebody cool wants to talk with us, either on or off the podcast. Uh, (laughs) But today, we are talking with Dr. Brenna Hassett. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hassett was a postdoctoral researcher at the Natural History Museum in London from 2012 to 2016, working on the Tooth Fairy Project, which is researching what forensic analysis of teeth can tell us about the diet and lifestyles of children in the past. And she's now a researcher at University College London doing a project called Radical Death, tubular death, no, which is about <laughs> human sacrifice and state formation. Um, she is a founding member of the Trailblazers Collective, which seeks to promote awareness of female participation in science, particularly contributions to archaeology, paleontology, and geology. She's also author of the Times Top 10 Science Book of 2017, Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death. And frankly, she makes us look like a couple of real noobs out here. So we are thrilled Goodness to gracious. have her here as our guest expert. Thank you for talking with us, Brenna. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. I'm excited. Anyone wants to talk about teeth? We do want to talk about teeth. Okay. I, mean, um, I like typically don't like talking about teeth, but like in a like I went to the dentist way. But I, I feel I'm like making an exception. <laughs> this is the chance. This is the time. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get to teeth? Can you describe for us sort of your educational and career path and and the point at which you decided you wanted to study what you study? Did you always know you wanted to study dead people in their teeth? Um, you know, I I had uh, what, what can be uh, called a unique approach to uh, education insofar as that I wasn't really convinced by it, especially as a teenager. Um, I... How did I come to teeth? Well, first I dropped out of high school, which is not the traditional approach to getting a PhD. Not um, usually. No, no, it is, it is not. Um, it's not considered a traditional approach. But actually, um, I was not sure at all what I wanted to do. Uh, when I was a teenager, I started working as a uh, assistant manager at a record store, um, which for listeners in the future, you may have to explain what that was. But, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hear they're coming back. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, I was not convinced of, of what I wanted to do and what I actually ended up, um, sort of, uh, doing was taking community college classes just for something to do, uh, because it turns out managing a record store is not the all consuming, fulfilling enterprise that I had thought it was age 16. Um, so I ended up taking a physical anthropology class at Orange Coast College, um, uh, down in, in, down in California. And, um, it just blew my mind. It's like, there were all of these humans who weren't human. We came from something and you could see it in our bones. 
Like there was evidence. I, I had not learned any of this and I was absolutely blown away. Um, so I kind of, uh, slowly got my act together. I actually transferred over to, um, UCLA, did my degree in anthropology, um, and then ended up going overseas, uh, to UCL. So university college, London, uh, to do a master's in archeology, span uh, with a specialty in dead people, because it turns out <laughs> dead people's bones, pretty interesting. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure if, um, you, what, what you were supposed to do after that. Uh, so I spent about a year working, um, on a project in Egypt, which was, uh, it turns out that's, that's actually where most people try and get in a lot of their careers. A, a lot of people might've been quite jealous of that. I just got very lucky and got hired for two seasons at the Giza plateau mapping project, which oh, was, wow. uh, yeah, it's like no big deal. I know that project. straight out of school job. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna go work the pyramids. I've been an archaeologist for mm, a year. Um, yeah, so that that worked that worked pretty well. Uh, but then actually, after after that year was up, uh, I came back and signed on for the PhD because it turns out that um, man, academic research is so much better than working for a living. It's true. I hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, yeah, so the PhD was at University College London again, and I had the good fortune to work with um, Professor Teeth, Mr. Simon Hilson, who um, was a recognized expert in teeth of all sorts, uh, but um, he was my PhD supervisor. So, uh, you know, when, you, when you're around top quality researchers like that, you, you try very hard to get into their orbit, <laughs> and I was lucky enough to, um, to spend, let's call it three years uh, it might have been a little longer, um, looking at children's teeth from post-medieval London, uh, which involved a lot of churches, museums, and staring very intently down a microscope at little tiny lines on children's teeth. Oh, that's a perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but first, let me knock you off that segue. When you said Professor oh. Teeth, I thought for I, a moment yeah. that you literally meant Professor Teeth. And I was like, is this Dr. Teeth of Dr. Teeth in the electric mayhem? It's unfortunate that you're not allowed to change your last name to sort of reflect important personal characteristics. Yes. I feel like just doing the names once somewhere back in, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon history or... Uh, uh, wherever you happen to hail from, that was unfortunate. You should, we should have a chance. We should have do over. But uh, exactly. But also, that would have been a beautiful case of nominative determinism. So I am very. Yeah. I'm just going to choose to believe that your advisor was a Muppet. <laughs> yes. A Muppet with a weird San Francisco bar named after him. Yes. <laughs> I, I think given, given the connotation of Muppet in uh, UK, oh, yeah. I probably can't go along with that. But uh, uh, in American, it's hilarious. Yes. So we mentioned uh, we mentioned up top the uh, Tooth Fairy Project. Yeah. Um, so what can teeth tell us about diet and lifestyles and how? And what was it about those lines on those tiny teeth that told uh, you so much? Lines on teeth. It always comes back to lines on teeth. So so I'm massively team teeth. Um, and the, the reason for that is is partially it's partially like laziness. So when you dig stuff up that's been in the ground for a long time, 
not all of it makes it like the ground is a very hard place to be. Um, depending can on confirm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially if you hit it at speed. I mean, wow. Um, but you know, it's, it's, there are issues with preservation. So one of the reasons, you know, in archeology, span we find stone tools, not, um, you know, cool wooden spears. All right. We have a couple of those, but, um, you know, we, we find stuff that preserves hard, dense tissue bones, are softer than teeth. This is a known thing. Um, teeth are like 97% mineral. So in a lot of cases, teeth are all that remains. Um, if you want to research something on human lives in the past and you want to get at individual lives where, you know, you can actually get right down and say, you know, how this person maybe lived or died. Um, then you want to access their actual body. The bones might be crumbly, don't ever get buried in like heavy, you know, on top of heavy limestone with acidic soils, like it's just not going to work out. Um, but your teeth might remain. So teeth are awesome in terms of just being available there to study. And the other thing is, um, teeth are essentially fossils. So, you're, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever broken a bone. No, actually. I've not had the pleasure. No. That is really a good plan on both of your parts. Wow. That is, um, <laughs> I'm very risk averse. I think it's um, really I, nice to hear someone say I had a good plan at some point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you should be commended for that. So <laughs> have you ever, have you ever chipped a tooth? Yes. Mm. Okay. All right. So in your, in your infinite knowledge of human, uh, foibles, which I'm sure both of you have extensive knowledge of, um, yep. you are aware that when human beings break their bones, it is unpleasant, of course, but they kind of, they knit back together. They, mm -hmm. you, you put them back in the place they're supposed to be and they slowly heal. Right. And if, even if, if you everything don't put goes them in according place, to plan, even if, yeah. even if you yeah. put them in a slightly off kilter place, they'll, oh, they'll they, try they work at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You won't like what that looks like. And it will, it will probably take that bone and put it in a museum. But, um, yeah, the, I've seen uh, some of those. Yeah. Yeah. The Hunterian museum here in London is actually amazing for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so bones, you know, bones are constantly reforming bones are constantly sort of, um, they, you know, they, they have to keep on knitting themselves back together as your body changes, as you get bigger, as you get smaller, blah, 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 blah bones. There's, there's like uh, not a bone in your body that has all of its constituent parts left. It's like an 11 year turnover and pretty much all of you is new. The great thing is teeth grow once they grow one time and you're done. So that one time that they're growing, they're taking in all of the chemicals around you. They're forming up their shape and nothing about that changes. So they are a fossil. They are a, a moment of where that tooth was growing frozen in your mouth. So that basically your teeth are just sitting there hanging out, telling the story of when you were growing them. Um, your bones could be changing, rewriting old stories, whatever, but your teeth tell the story of basically your childhood. Cause that's when we grow our teeth. So if you want to get at kind of an unaltered history, especially, uh, the unaltered history of kind of when you were a kid, then teeth is where you want to go. And it turns out that's what I was interested in. Oh, wow. I can probably tell you about lines on teeth too. If you want to know about lines on teeth. I want to know about lines on teeth. <laughs> yeah. On the show, we've only ever talked about lines on teeth, I think in, in one context and that's hypoplasias. Yeah. So, uh, you got a lot of lines on your teeth. 
your teeth are basically um, a weird little clock. So, um, <laughs> oh no, I got a mouthful of clocks. <laughs> I, God, that's a terrible image, actually. That's very like. Dumb. I have a dentist appointment tomorrow, and this is. <laughs> This is awful, but in in the best possible way. (laughs) Ah, it's it's always fun chatting to dentists. I enjoy the dentist most because um, usually they're actually interested in my research, which is very rare. But how Um, do you talk about it with a mouthful of dentistry? Turns out you 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 can cut off the actual dentistry for hours if you just keep talking about your research. Yes, this is perfect. This is. Just, just get a couple extra shots of Novocaine to be fine. Um, I am not a licensed dentist, by the way. Do not take any dental advice from me. The thing I actually got really into teeth was, so they tell the story of childhood. They tell the story of when you were growing. And they also tell the story of when you weren't growing. And that's the thing I was interested in. So teeth grow really regularly. Um, uh, you can kind of imagine, you know, there's a reason why everyone sings. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth when they're five, like, you know, in the, in the school, uh, you know, Christmas show or whatever. Um, it's because most kids, when they're five, that's when their front teeth fall out. Our teeth are on a strict schedule. They're going for it. Um, and that schedule is recorded inside the teeth. So every little day that you grow, Inside your teeth, uh, a little cell makes a little progression, and it sort of squeezes out some more little new new tooth material, and that leaves a line. And if I find your tooth several hundred, several thousand years later, chop it in half and look at it under a microscope, I can actually see those lines and count those lines and work out to the day, pretty much. Um, how old you were when various things happened, when you had an intake of certain chemicals that might be associated with the rainfall in the area you were living, the amount of meat you were eating or different plant foods, all sorts of stuff. I can get a pretty intense schedule. And the thing that I was really interested in is when that growth fails, because we can see that too. Those leave those big fat lines, which are hypoplasia, which is uh, what, what you mentioned before. So hypoplastic defects is where the whole system kind of went, uh, no, no growth right now. We're freaking out. Resources need to be devoted somewhere else. Um, and those you can actually see on the outside of teeth as well sometimes. So those mm-hmm. are clues basically to how badly you had it as a kid and potentially, you know, when and where and how your health took a turn for the worse. Turns out being a kid in the past may have sucked quite a bit. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, there, there is no prelapsarian Eden to which uh, we should wish to return. Um, because it turns out that growing up as a kid was tough. <laughs> and we can see the lines on kids' teeth from where they had to shut down their growth. And one of the things that I've spent a lot of my career looking at is, you know, where these lines happen and what it means, um, you know, whether rich kids or poor kids have worse health, worse experiences. Um, so that's, that's what we use lines on teeth for that and testing microscopes to see if you really go cross-eyed if you use them for hours on end. So I understand, I understand like what you've said so far about looking at like hypo, like hypoplasia and, um, and on the individual level, I get that. Um, so are you able to, um, is one, not necessarily that this would be your research, but is one able to tell this across populations? Like if, the, if you have, um, lots of teeth from a, um, 
from a population that um, perhaps there was like a famine or a natural disaster or something that would have have yielded kind of a like systemic problem uh, for a period of time. Could you look, could you identify um, individuals who lived through that? Is it such an individual process that you wouldn't be able to say like, oh, if we look at people who were uh, buried, who, who were born between year X and year Y and lived in this area, we can see that um, at a certain date, there was perhaps things like, were terrible. There was like a crop failure or there was a natural disaster or there was like the sort of economic effects of a war or something. Can you look at like population wide, whether like whatever you determine your population to be, or is that something that's too tenuous from the, the type of, of work that can be done in this regard? That's, that's a million dollar question. Um, you know, roughly, roughly speaking, you can actually look uh, for big trends. It's difficult because we don't actually quite know what causes the lines. We think it probably has something to do with fevers. Um, but you get more fevers when you're malnourished. Um, and, uh, you know, it might be, it might be that it's not just fevers, it's other kinds of, um, disruptions as well. Um, but, uh, so, so we've got a lot of uncertainty, but there are a couple circumstances where we think actually probably we did manage to, to identify kind of the inciting event, if you will. So one of the really interesting bits of research is by an anthropologist called Sharon DeWitt. And she's worked for years and years on um, a sample of human remains that was dug up from the Royal Mint uh, in London. Um, so the so it's basically, it's a plague cemetery. Um, plague being big news in these parts. Uh, so 1348, Black Death. Not a great year. Yeah, another great year. It's um, the world is full of them. Turns out, and plague stayed endemic for mm, six hundred years. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, thirteen forty eight, Black Death, bad year, and um, a lot, lot of people were buried um, in in relatively mass graves. And by the way, they're not just thrown in. It's it's not Monty Python style. You know, bring out your dead. The wheelbarrow goes in. They're nicely laid out and things, um, but they are all together because there were a lot of them. Uh, just everyone was overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, like, there are plague pits all under this city. Uh, yeah. There's we've, yeah. we've talked about, um, at least once we've talked about that one, um, like folks who, who subscribe to our Patreon feeds, there was a news story about, um, mm -hmm. evidence of a, a plague cemetery that was sort of associated just outside with, of a local abbey. Yeah, yeah. Where they, there was, it was one where, they just couldn't follow their normal process because they were so overwhelmed. And, and so we have, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So, so exactly. some listeners will be familiar. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much exactly that same thing where it's not, it's not mean. They're not just throwing them in there, but you know, it's, it's people right next to each other kind of in a line. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what that looked like. Um, but anyway, so, um, Sharon's research, um, looks at the, the bodies that are in that cemetery. And one of the things she found that, um, I think is really interesting is that certain age groups seem to be a little bit more, um, at risk of dying in that particular plague. And, uh, is it bacterial infection is, you know, it, you, you won't, different diseases have different profiles that they affect. And, um, the thing that she brought out was that 
a lot of the um, individuals uh, who would have been growing their teeth in about the 1320s, so they would have been whatever 30s or whatever when they died. Um, ha- you know, there seemed to be a lot of those individuals, and on those individuals' teeth, there were lines these lines that showed that their growth had been disrupted. And of course, what happened in England in 13, sort of 21, 22, and up to 23, was there was a massive famine. So the people who lived through that famine as children may have actually been more susceptible to dying of plague later, or, or that was kind of her, her temporary or her, her general um, theory. So that's, so that's something that we actually can point to. And of course, in, in modern times, we have similar evidence. Um, uh, there was a massive famine in China in the 1950s um, as a result of the sort of great leap forward. And, um, the, you know, it's a huge amount of starvation. But um, there are still um, individuals who were growing their teeth in the 50s who are alive today um, who have a much higher preponderance of um, these, these hypoplastic defects, these lines on teeth, than um, older or younger contemporaries. So, so we do think that actually sometimes you can see these big, big events on a population level. And so it's something that could be sort of um, used in context and sort of as like further complement to other um, like proxies for, for for looking like looking into the historical or prehistoric record. Like if there's other evidence of um, of either like a plague or or famine or something like that, this would be sort of further evidence to support that. Like, would it be sort of like a mutually informative um, yeah. yes. research there? Okay. Yeah. So you, you could use it to sort of say, well, it looks like these people might have been more vulnerable because their teeth show that during the specific period of development, you know, they, they had a harder time than these guys who didn't have that hard a time during that specific period. It's actually one of the things that people bring up a lot um, about the Neolithic Revolution, which I'm sure you have had opportunity to talk about previously. <laughs> but this is this is you know, the big transition where we all give up and sit down and refuse to move, um, sort of yes. 15, exactly where some may argue it was all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, Oh, but it's just, do you really want to keep walking? I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the Neolithic revolution because obviously we would not be where we are now. The podcast would not exist quite frankly. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I think we got to, we got to take the bad with the good. Um, but, you know, the, the Neolithic Revolution is something that people point to. So um, children's teeth from the Mesolithic or the sort of Epipaleolithic, so the bit right before we settle down and do this farming business, um, tend to have less of these lines on teeth than children from the later Neolithic period. And that's been held up as actually evidence um, that uh, when, these, when these kids are growing these teeth and getting these lines, you can tell what age the lines are happening at because of this clock issue. Um, and uh, it looks to researchers like the Neolithic kids are having lines on their teeth about every two years. Every two years, they, something bad happens. And one of the things that we know is the worst thing possible for a child is the birth of a sibling. Huh. Yeah, this is terrible for the child. I mean, you lose the attention, you lose the direct access to mom's feeding, which turns out might be a pretty dangerous time, depending on how much food you have available. Um, and this has been put together with ethnographic evidence that people who live kind of more mobile uh, lives 
they have kids about every four years. That's, that's how much space they put in between kids. Um, I mean, it can be more or less, but four years is, is pretty good. And you can, you can think of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is like, have you ever tried carrying a toddler and a baby through a rainforest? No, can't say I have, but I also don't want to. Yeah, it sounds no, difficult. No does. It's a terrible idea. You're going to lose one of them. You know, there are practicalities in terms of, uh, well, calories in, calories out and energy and just, you know, carrying um, that mean that, you know, baby spacing about four years works for hunter gatherers um, or foraging people or um, kind of people who, who live pretty mobile lives. And um, they, so when we start and if we think that, okay, every four years, they're getting that risk period, they might be getting those lines on teeth because that's when the new sibling comes and their food quality suddenly goes way down. And, um, and we see them every two years in the Neolithic, that might actually be evidence that baby spacing has dropped because we know when foraging groups settle down, suddenly it becomes a lot easier to have kids much faster. They have kids about every two years, which is kind of an average um, every two years. Uh, so the Neolithic Revolution, those lines on teeth might actually be pointing us to the craziest idea we ever had, which is let's have a lot more of us. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. It's, it's not as though like, oh, these lines appear here because the Neolithic, like the various technologies that emerged during the Neolithic were like a bad idea. And, and actually it's, it was harder uh, to sort of grow as a human, but actually like people uh, living in that time may have felt more secure and like more comfortable saying like, Oh, we, you know, we can't afford another child in like whatever sort of sense of affording, like we can afford like calorie wise, like sort of space wise, like sort of transit wise. And so it, it is, it could be taken as um, sort of evidence in support of the six. I don't know why I'm suddenly becoming such like a, an apologist for the Neolithic revolution, but like it's something that everyone ends up in that position eventually. It's, it's, <laughs> but, it, but it's something where it's not, it's not necessarily the sign of something bad. It's the sign of the, of, of a perceived systemic good. change. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's good 
if you if you look at uh, human beings as a species, it's like, well, we made more of us. That's a win. And the Neolithic is, is sort of when that really seems to spiral, uh, you could say, out of control. That's really cool. I just yeah. had to process that for a moment. <laughs> right? Like, teeth are really cool. You can do so much cool stuff with teeth. And that's that's actually, that's just a small part. I should say that um, the tooth project is a collaboration of amazing amazing colleagues who know all sorts of things that I really don't know. Um, they're just very impressive people. So I work with a woman called Louise Humphrey who does isotope studies. Um, so these are, you know, the chemicals that are being taken in and, and used to build up the teeth. So she's got an incredible bit of research and we're looking now at, um, you know, small, tiny microscopic dots of chemical sampling that, that'll tell us, you know, at exactly 30 day periods where, you know, where the child was in an oxygen cycle or water cycle or whatever it is. And, um, and professor Christopher Dean is my other collaborator on that, who has um, used this kind of um, these clock mechanisms in teeth to work out things like how fast um, Turkana boy, the, the famous homo erectus skeleton was actually growing, you know, were his teeth growing like a human or growing more like an Australopithecus or an ape. So there's, there's all sorts of additional, very cool tooth fairy research going on in this project. And obviously, um, you know, the, the main benefit is just having to write that on your budget line on every form. Uh, does, does funding for this project appear under your pillow? <laughs> it's, it's like that. Um, but we, we had to, you know, there are a couple incidents. There are people didn't quite understand it, so we had to stop that for uh, legal reasons. But um, <laughs> so, speaking of collaborating with some amazing folks, you are a part of the Trailblazers Collective. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of how it came to be? Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is my other other hat. Um, I have many. <laughs> I'll try um, to keep my closet I'll full try, of them. You know, I'll try to keep my screeching to a minimum over here. <laughs> well, if, if it, Amber's a really big. I mean, we're both really big fans of oh, Trailblazers. Good. But, yeah, no. but I've been following Trailblazers. I think since your inception. Yeah, you're like seven years now. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I am, I'm flailing. You'll probably hear me hit my, my mic in a second, but this is fine. I'll so take please. it out and post. <laughs> uh, well, that is, that is um, perhaps the most flattering possible uh, reaction. And um, oh. if you were a five-year-old girl and responded with a small handwritten letter to some stickers we gave you, we would also follow. Oh. Um, yeah, that happened once. It was really adorable. It was, oh. <laughs> it was like the best thing we've ever done. Um, if we, if, if our entire mission was just sending stickers to small children, we would still be happy. I just, I'd like to point that. <laughs> um, so trailblazers. Yeah. So trailblazers is what happens when early career researchers get angry on the internet, which it turns out that's a pretty common thing for early career researchers to do. But, um, so trailblazers, yeah, weirdly very productive. Um, so trailblazers is Victoria Herridge, who's a paleontologist, Becky Rag Sykes, who is an archaeologist and lithic specialist, Suzanne Pilar Birch, who is a zoarch and isotope specialist, and me, who is whatever I am, bioarchaeologist, um, dental anthropologist, manager of record stores. And we, uh, we sort of bonded. We hadn't actually all met each other. We were sort of internet friends in the early days of Twitter. Um, and, uh, we, we, um, bonded over these kind of forgotten stories of women who it's just one of those things that when you look at a, a core syllabus, uh, a core textbook, 
or any sort of introductory volume. And people, you know, think of, you know, well, who, who are the big names in archaeology in your discipline? Almost everyone you think of is male. It's like, well, is that, is that really true? Because each of us individually could think of like kind of individual women who've been a big, big deal. So I was at UCL. Um, there's, there's Kathleen Kenyon, uh, who dug Jericho. She's, I mean, she's a dame. Why aren't we talking about it? She's a dame. She was like, you know, whatever girl knighting is. Uh, I'm not really sure that's a thing, but you know, she's a dame. There are all of these women who, who existed. And so we thought, you know, we'll just have some fun and we'll just, we'll just do little, celebration posts of these women that we knew about that didn't seem to be getting the recognition, you know, that they, that they deserved. And so we thought, all right, we'll do a Tumblr again for listeners in the future. And, or now you may need to refer to Wikipedia for what that was. Um, but we, we do a little, just photos and a little fun biography of a handful of women. I just put it up on the internet so people would sort of see that there had been women, uh, in what we like to call the digging sciences, so we're, we're, we're big on archaeology, uh, geology, and paleontology because those are kind of the field sciences, the, the ones where you go out and dig. Um, and there's a lot of great jokes about, you know, outstanding women in the field. Uh, if, if we can make a pun about it, we will. More specifically, Tori will. That's, that's her job. Um, that's my job on this show. Every collective needs one. That's, someone has to do that. That's, hey! It's an important that? So a peek behind the curtain right now. Uh, a few minutes ago, Anna texted me a terrible pun oh. <laughs> with respect to something you oh. said. And and I <laughs> and I responded uh, strongly. <laughs> so I, I, I received a reprimand. I feel, I feel chided. Thank you. <laughs> I feel valued. <laughs> I, I think um, you know. Uh, you got to take a little punishment. Hey. Sorry. Yeah. But, so, you know, it was, it was kind of funny, lighthearted thing. So we thought we'd do it for about four weeks because we could think of like four women, like one each. Uh, so that, that was seven years ago. Wowzers. It turns out there have been a lot more women in archaeology and geology and paleontology than, than I think any of us actually knew or suspected. And, um, you know, once, once you start pulling that thread, the whole sweater just kind of, phew, it's a Weezer song, you know, everything just, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank you for getting my cultural reference. <laughs> Depending on what class I'm teaching, my jokes have started to fall flat. It's like, Oh, Oh no. Yeah. yeah me too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, it, in its spiral. So it turns out if you find one woman in the digging sciences, there are others who worked with her. So, you know, one of the, the first, uh, like, <laughs> travel impacts. Yeah. It's like they're not alone. It's not a unicorn. It's like, you know, this is a half the human race. And it turns out a lot of them showed up. And so, you know, we started finding out about things like uh, in 1921, 1929, even, um, a woman called. I'm looking in 1929. Yeah, this year might have to be renamed. Um, But uh, yeah, so 1929, the other one, a woman called Gertrude Catton Thompson organized an all female excavation to great 
Zimbabwe, which is a big, huge, um, historically important uh, archaeological site in um, well, Zimbabwe. And um, coming up on the dirt, yeah, it's on. Yeah, it's on the docket for us. So. Oh, awesome! Awesome! Oh, yeah. Well, you, well, you, you have to. I'm very excited. I will definitely listen to that one because it's um, it's such a cool project. Because not only yes. does, does she sort of dig stuff up and, and basically tell uh, a bunch of uh, South African races at a conference to f off. She she takes this all female team. One of whom is Kathleen Kenyon, who's like 16 and gets brought along as the photographer and car mechanic. What? Why not? Why not? It's like, I, like it's an like, icon. <laughs> it's like maybe that's the path to damehood. You start off with car mechanics and you just work your way up. I is like, let's hope so. But you know, it's just there are all these incredible stories, and the more you find out about individual women, the the more individual women you find. And so, Trailblazers kind of transformed into. Um, a really community sourced archive. So, so we couldn't, we can't write the hundreds of posts that we now have. Um, but we found that people would, would write to us and say, Oh yeah, but did you know about this woman? She, she was my teacher for you know 20 years, but she never got the recognition she deserved. Or did you know about this person? She was, you know, the, you know, the, the first person to do field work in uh, the Yukon or, you know, all of this very cool stuff. So we actually sort of became kind of more of a, a community sounding board for people to kind of celebrate all of these women um, who just, their stories get buried. Um, there's a real problem with underrepresented groups in archaeology is, you know, you just don't hear about them. You don't see them, you don't hear about them. We thought, all right, well, we're going to take our little platform. We're going to put pictures of all of these women in all of their stupid field outfits. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, wearing a giant uh, Edwardian skirt turns out is not very practical for climbing the pyramids. So if you're Hilda Petrie, you just take that stuff off. You climb them in your bloomers. It's fine. Excuse me, I need to Google. <laughs> yes. She had a commitment to climbing that pyramid. By the way, don't climb the pyramids. That's bad. But um, no, 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 <laughs> not gonna. Just saying that someone's done it, and they've done it slightly cooler than you already. So don't even bother. <laughs> it was really. I think it was about seven years ago that some women that I know from my own field work first sort of shared it on Facebook, and I think maybe some of them like knew somebody who was in somebody's cohort who knew you or something, but it was still very much like, look at my, look at my friends, like former roommate, what they're doing kind of thing. And it was very cool and very exciting. Um, and I was, I was kind of surprised as I got into it to start learning about, um, women who had been in, as you said, the other digging sciences. And, um, so I'm, I'm really interested to hear, um, more about this because, um, I was, you know, I was very attracted to this work anyway, because I had done some research on sort of early lady travelers and sort of the first <laughs> women that had been admitted to the Royal Geographical Society and looking at how there is like everybody who was doing this and was an underrepresented group, they kind of knew each other and they knew they weren't the only one. Um, but no one wanted to really talk about that. And, and so that's something that has been, um, sort of in my sort of the, the very limited view, but also in following trailblazers for the last seven years is something that's kind of held of like, I know I'm out here and I know you're out here, but like oh, no one's talking oh, about yeah. it. Yeah. And it's, and, and that's something that, um, like tragically carries over to other like common 
themes among experiences of women in, in field sciences, like things that are, um, that for a long time had been kind of known and everyone and sort of known and dealt with and spoken about, but it wasn't widely known because I, I suppose like men who had like, who were heads of sort of peer reviewed journals didn't know about it or something, but, but it's something that, um, I think the, over the past seven years, I think that your work has become more and more, uh, crucial. I think it's something to have, to have like a, a sort of like legacy to, to look back upon and to see that this is, that there are generations of, of people who are like standing behind you sort of that, that you can look to. Um, so Shoulders that's just of like, giants and all that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so I just, I just Shoulders wanted to take a second. To me, to female persons. Yes. <laughs> right. And so I just wanted to take a, take a second to like sort of very publicly, like sort of thank you for the, the work that you've done with that. And also just to say that, um, that, that work is, is, has been, um, really, healing and informative in ways, not only in looking at following in someone's intellectual footsteps, but also clearing the path ahead and sort of giving um, me as a woman who worked in, uh, who no longer works in the field, but who like my, my work very much deals with the field, um, seeing that there is, because there is a, there are there are paths behind us. There is a path forward. And so it's very, um, it's very moving to see some of these things, but getting back to my, the point of my question that I had in the script, um, it was, it's very interesting to see that there are other, the, the sort of other digging sciences. So I had always thought about like the analogous fields to doing archeological research in the field, the analogous fields being, um, geography, being classics, being ancient history, like those sorts of things. Um, but trailblazer showed me this entire other direction of sort of intersecting and analogous fields. And I just wanted to know if this is, this just the product of, of the, so the, the handful of you being friends on the yeah, internet, I think there are four of you. Yeah. Um, are there other fields that you were thinking of including, or was this very deliberate from the outset? Uh, like what was, was it like an emergent theme of like, well, we all happen to dig. <laughs> like, how did that come about? And I, I just want to, because yeah. this is something that women are like historically underrepresented in nearly every field. Yeah. Including the fields in which they are truly dominant in terms of the numbers of people doing that field. Yeah. Which so is, how did you land there? Archaeology is rapidly approaching, I believe. Well, at first, thank you. That's it's a lovely thing to hear. And I, I think Trailblazers definitely hopes that we're we're doing something useful. We got all sorts of taglines, but we're, we're very big on see it, be it. So just providing the actual pictures that show, you know what, someone did this before you can do it now. Uh, and we're really, really big on networks. Um, there's a, there's a network diagram that Tori did, um, which is terrifying, but it shows some of the connections between sort of Victorian women and archeology, span which is, um, it's, it's just a masterpiece. So, and networks, it turns out are one of the things that get and keep women in the science. So I, I, I'm, we, this is now what kind of academic, trailblazers research is but in terms of um how did we get there with because three of us are archaeologists and one of us is a paleontologist so we did need to be broad ish um right. from the beginning because we had we had kind of similar concerns and as it were yeah hey. um, uh, i wasn't gonna do it <laughs> someone had to step in 
<laughs> See, that's why it's an important role. Um, but, uh, you know, so we had, uh, you know, paleontology and archaeology is a very similar experience and geology as well is, you know, these are field sciences. So, so these are specifically, they involve quite a lot of going to, you know, different places, travel, uh, working in field conditions. And I think that was the, the particular aspect is that, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, I think people sort of think, well, of course, you know, some, some polymath blue stocking in the past could have sat quietly in a library and learned Greek and done translations of things. Um, but what they don't think about is that someone actually dressed up as a French soldier and learned to sharpshoot so they could join a regiment and go basically loot Sousa. Um, that wasn't really their goal, but they did do that. You know, so there's, there's, there's a, there's a barrier to entry to a lot of the field sciences, which is just general social expectations of what women can do. And I think yeah. for, for, for us today, it's so much more striking to imagine what we see as these prissy dress wearing, hat wearing women, um, you know, wielding a giant mattock. <laughs> Like that's an arresting visual image. And that's, that's you love to see it. Right. Yes. I mean, I, one of my favorite pictures is of a geologist called Zonia Baber, who's a, a American. Almost all of them are suffragettes, by the way, just like FYI, they're all kind of on the international committee for peace. They're all fascinating, interesting, politically driven women. Um, Okay, not all of them. Some of them had terrible politics. Yeah, but, I was like, I can think of one very famous one that had terrible politics and was anti-suffragette. <laughs> but yeah, I don't want to yeah. like sacrifice no, 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 the movement but, but here. A lot, of, a lot of them didn't. I'd say yes. the majority were probably more liberal. Um, but uh, yeah, there was there's a uh, and that's that's kind of the problem actually. There is uh, I'm gonna side note here, but um, Please. you know one of the problems is. Trailblazers, a lot of the women that we find are deeply embedded in a system of colonialism. They are, they are adventurers and adventuresses um, who are backed by state expansion into territories they probably should not have been in, um, taking advantage of, you know, immense networks of wealth and kind of access. So think of someone like Gertrude Bell. Who, um, that's exactly who I was thinking of as yes, yes, <laughs> oh, I've just been reminded of by her anti-suffragette state. But she, you know, she's a, a family of diplomats. She was able to basically tear through the Middle East, and you know, why is <laughs> why is Gertrude Bell invited to the you know the camel photo op with Churchill, where they decide who the next king of Iraq is? Um, you know, that's that's a weird. That's a weird place to start science from. Um, so, but a lot of a lot of the the women that we do know about and that are written about are written about in this kind of adventurous sense. Yeah. And um, one of the projects that we're really into now is actually moving moving away from that and clarifying how deeply embedded in kind of colonialism a lot of these narratives are, um, because they're still amazing achievements and, and strange, bizarre you know, surreal moments in the history of, of the world where you're climbing the pyramids in your underwear. But, um, you know, they, they're also, they're part of a system that, you know, didn't necessarily let uh, the more impoverished or certainly people from, you know, other, you know, language groups or ethnicities participate. So we've got we to be a little bit careful about hero worship with trailblazers, basically. Yeah. 
the thing, which is one of the reasons why we're so into networks, because, you know, it's, it's this idea that it's networks of women that are all linked together, that are supporting each other. And those networks don't have to be wealth influence and, um, having, you know, parents in the foreign service, you can, you can actually build other networks. And hopefully that's kind of what trailblazers is, is done. And, and there are all sorts of networks. There's, you know, uh, mentoring women in archaeology networks now. There's lots of student groups on different campuses and things that sort of provide, you know, these kind of things. And it's, it's one of the things that we worry about um, is, is how much this adventurous narrative gets in the way of, of really changing the things that matter. But yeah. cool, cool stories. No, it's, it's, it's very um, moving to hear that, to hear you say, like, I am moved hearing that because that's something that um, I as a child was very um, invested in the adventurous um, n- narrative and like very, um, like very interested in being that. And I sort of, I came at it from very much like a geographer, like explorer angle where like, that's, that's what made me want to enter the field because there was a romance to it. Um, and then as I started to learn and started to realize that all of that romance was sort of on the backs <laughs> of, um, of, of real people and of oppressed people. And that were in, um, I had a, I've had a real, <laughs> like, a real 180 relationship with, with Gertrude Bell over my, <laughs> over my life of just realizing that like she is, um, looking up to her and then, and then learning all of these other things and, and moving in all these other directions and realizing that she was very much invested in, um, for like maintaining what yes. I found to be like the antithesis yeah. of like my views. Uh, it was hard. It's hard to see that. <laughs> it's hard. And so yeah. having something like this, having never something like heroes. No. Yeah. Never, <laughs> never critically examine them. Never meet your heroes. That's... Yeah. And, and so I, I think that it's so, it is so crucial uh, to have something like trailblazers and had an identification of these networks and to realize that Gertrude Bell was not the, a like singular genius. Like she, she just is the one who got good press. And, and so it's much easier to see myself in a network because there are so many others and like sort of little O others and big O others in these networks that um, it is, it's possible to find, to, to, to find an analog to oneself. Well, I like that. That's, that's a much more, I, I like the, I like the idea that, you know, if you can see the the type and the network and the, you know, rather than the individual, I think you're a much happier human being. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. And one of the things with Trailblazers that's been incredibly, incredibly rewarding is, of course, the more you dig into uh, individual women's lives, the more you learn about the women who were kind of also, you know, that were involved, but didn't make the big headlines, didn't, didn't, didn't make that conference with Churchill, weirdly, and they're not in the photograph on top of the camels. That's also on our website, I think. Um, And uh, so one of my favorite stories on Trailblazers is the story of Yusra. Um, so, uh, there's a, a very famous female archeologist, uh, Dorothy Garrett, who's the first ever professor of archeology span in the UK, uh, she's at Cambridge and, um, she dug, um, the site of Taboon, which was, uh, which is in, I think, um, Israel, Mount, uh, Mount Carmel. Um, and yep. she found, um, or at least we thought she found, uh, Taboon one Neanderthal child. Um, which is, you know, the Smithsonian, if you click on their Taboon One, you know, a little informo sheet, it says, yeah, found by Dorothy Garrett. It turns out it's actually found by one of her Palestinian workmen and not workmen, workwomen. So there used to be local uh, Palestinian women who would come and do small fines processing, uh, you know, a little bit of paid work, and, and they would come year after year. And it was actually Yusra who never had a chance at education, formal education. It wasn't something that she was ever offered or, um, you know, would have been possible for her, even though she apparently expressed a desire to do so, but it, you know, didn't work out. And she had about four kids by then. Um, she's the one who was doing the fines processing, who actually found that first tooth and brought it to Dorothy Garrett. And so it's, you know, it's really, really rewarding to now, you know, we, we shouted about this from the rooftops. We, and now you go to Smithsonian and you click and it says, you know, tab one found by Yusra. I mean, she didn't even have a last name, but she still made a huge contribution to archeology. span And I, I think, you know, those stories exist and the more you dig, the more you find them. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. And we'll yes. include, um, and we'll, in, we're going to include links in our show notes so that folks can, can go can go learn more about Yusra, learn more about all of these, these other, these other people that have been involved in the process as long as the process has existed. And so that's like the things we suspect are, turns out that they're being borne out. So just switching topics slightly, as you told us up top, you had kind of an unconventional path to where you are now, but I think a lot of folks consider that there might be this sort of fixed track once you get into academia there's this track to either research or being a professor but what would you say to someone who wanted to study or learn topics in archaeology or anthropology or you know paleontology geology but doesn't want to be hemmed in by that fixed track what are some other ways to study how humans human well, I mean, I think nothing should stop you from studying this. Like if this, if you want to read, if, if this is your jam, like if you want to listen to podcasts, read the books, um, take a couple community college classes, like there, there is nothing that should stop anyone from doing that. Like that is 
probably the best and healthiest way to engage with archaeology. This is my theory. Um, because then you don't have to freak out about the terrifying career structure of academic America or England or whatever it is. Like, you know, it's, it's there's, there's a lot of stress there. If you've got a perfectly decent job and can afford to take some night classes, awesome. Volunteer a couple weeks in the summer on a dig. Great. That seems like a really good way to engage. But obviously some of us um, decided to, it's like making a living, but it's less money. Um, you know, <laughs> sort of. We laugh to keep you from just, crying. You just described my career. Oh my God. <laughs> it's true. And it's, it's very, so, you know, there, there is obviously, there's a, there's a very formal schooling route, uh, which people might be familiar with, which is, you know, well, get good grades in high school, go to a good university, get good grades there, get into grad school, do something impressive with your thesis or some research. And then you can have a, you know, the, the route to professorship is, is there before you. Um, you know, it doesn't always work like that. So a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, people branch off into CRM, so commercial archeology, span um, and there are also, there are all sorts of careers that kind of appear on the side. So, um, if, if I was to be professional at trailblazers, which Lord knows we are not, that is not our brand. Um, you know, but if we were to, to be sort of professional at, at things like trailblazer, that's actually a field called science communication, which is, you know, this whole new thing that has come up. So you could end up working for museums, uh, big institutions, universities, um, certain types of journals and press, lots of magazines, you know, um, basically just being good at particular kind of science and having the background to write kind of fluid, fun, informative articles or make, you know, podcasts like this, which convey useful information to the public. So, hey, thanks. Yeah, yeah. You're doing psychom. Huh. You're doing well. Anna, save this. I need to send it to my dad. <laughs> it's a real job. Turn it into a ringtone. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, it's, people get employed for this. This is, you know, this is a real job. It's a real job, Dad. <laughs> it's, we're still working out with my dad whether uh, he thinks I dig dinosaurs or not. I had to get him the T-shirts. And, yeah, yeah. But. Um, well. <laughs> But, baby um, steps, baby steps. We're just working on it, working on it. Um, the, you know, and the other, the other option is of course there's, um, there's teaching. There's a lot of teaching opportunity. You could teach very happily if they pay you. It turns out that's, that's sometimes the problem. Um, and of course research is tremendous fun. So I've, I've had a, a couple very lucky breaks where I've been able to be either employed on a research project, specifically like a dig. So like Giza plateau, the, the pyramids, um, you know, they, they have money. <laughs> Surprisingly, they're well-funded. Uh, and so they're able to pay for someone like me to come out. Um, and I was, I was specifically paid to deal with their archive, which is, uh, which is not exactly what I wanted to be doing in archeology, span but it was a paid job and it was a pyramid. So that seemed like a good idea. So what I do is, you know, postdoctoral research. So if I've had a series of contracts where either a group of people propose a research topic and they hire someone like me to carry out part of it, or for my most recent work, um, I take a research I've done in the field, uh, take it around to funding bodies going, is this not the coolest thing you've ever seen? Would you not like to pay me to do several years more to produce even more cool things? Um, and that's, that's actually apparently a career option. It's not, it's not permanent. I'm not even sure it's long-term, but, um, it's, it's an I, option. I don't have to teach much. So. 
obviously, as you, as you've already sort of demonstrated for us, um, and your work speaks for itself also, um, science communication is clearly very near and dear to you. Um, and so how would you characterize your goals as somebody trying to get non-academics, um, jazzed about science and, um, or, or, you know, non-academics or baby academics, you know, like folks that, <laughs> like academic. possible future oh. academics um and 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 for that matter um part of part of that territory is dealing with with <laughs> dealing with and and meeting people where they're at um and that some of those people are um folks that reject stuff like um evolutionary evolutionary theory or other key scientific principles or perhaps just other key principles that that you hold and that your work holds. Um, so could you maybe give us a How little bit of your, that? <laughs> I think this was the question that I originally drafted as give us your manifesto. <laughs> and I was like, let's judge this. <laughs> Dial that back, buddy. Well, you know, I think, you know, I've been really, really fortunate in that I exist and live in um, a very academic community. Um, you know, I, I am I am somewhat bubbleized. I live in metropolitan London, where everybody thinks books with jokes about Alan Rickman and science are great. Yeah, there's a real move culturally here to have things like science festivals, which are, you know, you take your kids to and they can learn not just how to do the like baking soda volcano thing, but they can, you know, um, watch live robotics uh, uh, displays where they can listen to a, a talk from um, some impressive paleoanthropologist, you know, talking about uh, who's not me, um, talking about, you know, discovering a, a fossil hominid or something. So I think there's a I'm lucky to be around a culture where science is, if not cool, then there is a niche in which science is cool, if that makes sense. Like, there's a ton of, of you know, real sort of you can, science festively type things where people get quite excited. And so I don't actually encounter that much pushback in terms of the science of evolution in my day-to-day -day life. Even at um, the museum, so the Natural History Museum is, you know, one of these amazing August institutions of British culture. Uh, it has, you know, a, a huge long history, uh, very intimately associated with um, Darwin and Huxley. I mean, we've got Darwin's finches in the basement. They're in the basement. I've seen them. They look dead. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's it's pretty cool to be hanging out. You know, I pass by a dodo in a case every day. I want to pass by a dodo. It's, it is. It, I, <laughs> the dodo is largely reconstructed. We'll get, we'll get you a dodo, Anna. <laughs> Thank you. This, this is scientific history. So so where because of where I've worked and, and the people I've worked with, you know, there's a real recognition and appreciation for a lot of that stuff. We do get letters usually with amazing handwriting, which I always find fascinating, just meticulous script informing of, you know, dangers of, uh, religious punishment for, uh, mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I, by and large, um, as a, as a public institution, we're obliged to reply to queries, but usually they're not formed in a in space, but this is, you know, shape of a question. So, uh, so yeah, they, um, they, they don't necessarily always get answered. We do read them though. We definitely read them. Um, whereas, you know, I think that there are, there are other arenas, um, where you can, you can push into that are not necessarily, let's say science safe spaces. Like um, the internet? 
<laughs> the internet being one of them. Um, and I think, I think people who have a, a much higher profile in terms of Twitter and social media and stuff really get a ton, an absolute ton of, um, I've just, you know, absolutely, you know, just trashed. Uh, I, I'm, uh, there's a gentleman who writes books on the history of, um, DNA. He's a geneticist at UCL. Um, Adam Rutherford. Yeah. This is like the 500th time that <laughs> listeners have heard about him. <laughs> like, I'm a big fan. <laughs> at this point, a portion of his royalty should go to Anna. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Adam, you know, just gets a ton of internet crap. I mean, geez, like I, I I've seen his Twitter, his Twitter feed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, that is a trash fire upon a trash fire. Um, and, uh, but, but very, you know, uh, you know, very much, I think believes in the cause and, and does what he does anyway. And that's, um, you know, it still writes the books and still has the awkward conversations. And I think that's, um, that's really impressive. And there are lots of um, writers. Ange- uh, Angela Saini, um, if you've heard of her, mm-hmm. she wrote a book called, um, she wrote two books, both of which are pretty impressive. Uh, the first one um, is called Inferior, which is about uh, women in science and the sexism that has been basically underlying um all sorts of science, uh, just kind of unthought misogyny. So stuff like um, almost everything ever in labs was done on male rats with male lab attendants. And it turns out rats really don't like male lab attendants. It stresses them the heck out. <laughs> and uh, so when, when they started having more female lab attendants, all those stress studies had to be redone. Because <laughs> it turns <laughs> out... Oh, because all the rats chilled out. Yeah, they're like, mm, no, she's are like, I like that I'm, guy. Just, I'm just vibing down here. Like, yeah. it's like oh, today yeah. rats are vibing. Yeah. So just yeah, all the all the sort of scientific uh, consequences of having this default male perspective. So that's an amazing book. And then the uh, the other book she's um, the more recent book she's written is Superior, which is about race science and how kind of perspectives on race have really just torched um, aspects of scientific modeling and need to be really seriously addressed and, and some pretty egregious examples in there. So, I mean, there are people who are writing really kind of, you know, intense in your face, you know, this is science has some problems. Let's, let's push this out. Who I think face much more of that kind of internet trash fire, um, than a little book on bones does. Well, we've already, we've already mentioned you wrote a book and, Along with the Monty Python jokes, it is a really impressive feat of tackling 15,000 years of humans doing human stuff in urban environments. How do you break down a topic like that? Because if I thought about writing a topic (laughs) on a topic that big, I think I would get overwhelmed and give up and take a nap. I am not saying the naps were not taken during the production. That's what I've been doing Um, so far for our book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've got... We've got some written. You know, um, the, the, the most useful thing that I've ever told myself about writing a book, um, besides get up from your nap, um, is uh, science books, you can kind of think of them in the same shape as a course. So we teach in 10, 10 week bursts here. Um, and, uh, essentially, you know, 15,000 years of life and death. So built on bones. That's, that's the name of the book. Uh, Hey, by the way, I, I did, I narrowed it down all the stuff humans did. No, no, just the dying, just the dying. Okay. So okay. That's, that's 
good. So we, we narrowed it down a little bit, but, um, the book is kind of equivalent to a master's course in paleopathology over time. So if I was going to teach that as a course, I'd break it down into these 10 chapters and, uh, you know, this, this would be the sensible way to go through them. So it's a little bit like preparing a course. So if, if you have experience teaching, it's actually not nearly as daunting, I think, as, as you might think it is, because what you're doing is conveying something that hopefully, you know, uh, and eh. you know, in, in, in chunks where someone's getting some information, you know, a full concept should emerge from each of these chapters. I'm kind of hoping this, that's what's happening. I'm, I'm doing a second book right now. So, uh, I was a lot better at teaching the other one. So <laughs> <laughs> our final two questions are those that we ask all the guests that we have on our show. And it's really interesting to kind of see the breadth of responses. So Amber, yours, yours is up first. Yeah. So to you, what is the best thing about anthropology? Like what's your absolute favorite thing aspect of the discipline? I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, we're all, <laughs> it's like, we're all narcissists, right? It's like, how would you not want to just know more about you? It's about you. This song is about you. Like, <laughs> it's, why is this not fascinating? I just, I, this might be the, you know, I child of California in the eighties and I just got some narcissism issues to deal with, but it's like anthropology is the most interesting thing in the world. Cause it's about us. It is. It, it is might be all... the most succinct answer yeah. we've ever received. <laughs> um, I once in a, um, in a workshop I was leading, I made this statement that, um, research often is me search like sort of like what <laughs> like leads people to research questions is, is often very much in formed by a hunch that they have from their own experience or, or so it often becomes me search. And one of the, one of the members of the class uh, is a research librarian and like some of her own work in the courses she teaches is on sort of bias and like objectivity of research. And she was so mad. <laughs> I was like, I'm not <laughs> saying that's how it ought to be. <laughs> but, yeah. So, it is. It is. Yeah. It's, um, it's me search. I'm a me searcher somehow <laughs> doesn't sound super great on a CV. <laughs> no, but I think but, it's well in a bar. So uh. speaking of questions, you could ask someone in a bar. <laughs> if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in history or prehistory, or in fact, history of the discipline of anthropology, what would you choose? Gosh, I mean, so there's, I know it's a hard one. Yeah. So there's all sorts of stuff. Like, um, I kind of feel like I would have liked Margaret Mead a lot. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it, like I could imagine like one of those dinner party scenarios where like, I really want to meet Marshall Solins and Margaret Mead. And then I kind of want to like, I don't know, just invite some people who I think would be difficult and watch them fight. Yeah, it's just like, I, I got ideas <laughs> like that. But, um, I, it's not fun. Like everyone agrees, you know, and I, I particularly always think that I would have, I would have really liked to, to be kind of in Chicago when, when the Binfords, so, uh, Sally and Lou Binford are kind of the famous power couple of, of the new archeology. span I just, I would have loved to, you know, given, given that Sally Binford is just the most interesting person I have never heard enough about, you know, uh, Sally Binford was a, a woman of incredible conviction, um, like really incredible conviction, so, so much so that, uh, you know, it seems to have, have sort of prematurely ended her life. Um, but, um, you know, she, she just had uh, such interesting perspective. And then she worked with this guy 
who, um, you know, and, and while they were working together, you know, he was publishing all of this stuff that had this huge impact on the field and how we think about what it is we can actually find out about the past. Um, and I would, I'd love to see what her, you know, how she was sort of existing in, in this space that, you know, for, for whatever, 20 years, everyone's been taught about Lou Benford and we hear very little about the contribution of Sally Benford. So I'd, I'd love to know kind of what she was actually thinking mostly because her thoughts probably be really wild. But yeah, I mean, it, like if I actually had the sort of like fly on the wall, fly on the wall moment, I, I'm going to have to say, you know, I'd like to go back uh, approximately 5,000 years to a site in southeastern Turkey that uh, is the center of my current research. And I'd like to know what exactly they were doing with the whole human sacrifice thing. So that's, that's going to have to be my answer. That would clear up your research. It very would nicely, really help a lot. <laughs> Brenna, thank you so, 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 so much for, for chatting with us. And where can people find you if they wish to do so on the interwebs and in bookstores and all that? Yeah, well, um, I, I am, I am Legion as long as Legion is digital. Um, so, uh, people are welcome to find me on Twitter at Brenna walks, um, which is probably the most straightforward, but, um, the, and, uh, trailblazers, so mm-hmm. that's at Trailblazers. And we also have the website, which is trailblazers.com. Um, and the book should be available at all of the finest booksellers. Only the finest. Um, and also probably some mid-level and unfortunate ones. But, you know, try and, try and stick to the finest ones, obviously. just Bookmongers. Bookmongers. At a bookmongers near you. The book should be available. It's also on... Um, you know, it's, it's also a Kindle book and all that stuff. Um, oh, great. It's not audible. Uh, so you can, you can actually have what? a book. Um, Who reads it? Um, Who's the voice? Me, a very, a very nice lady. So I, I'm not sure if it's, um, my accent has slowly, slowly drifted from, from its original California origins to, uh, this country that I've been in for almost two decades. Um, so it sort of, I think at various points, especially if I'm talking about academic things, uh, my accent sounds like it's sort of in a, in a small rowboat with just one oar in the center of the Atlantic sort of, sort of thing. <laughs> but it's not, it's not you on the audiobook. It's, it's a nice lady. No, no, it's uh, no. Um, and I think it, the, the book is uh, just as a fair warning. Um, the book is a fairly whirlwind tour through all of the types of things that killed us as we lived in cities. So it's about, it's about urban. People dying a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it turns out cities kill you a lot and in very inventors, sort of interesting, inventive ways. It kind of marches through time. So as we get bigger and bigger cities, kind of what happens to our actual bodies? Um, you know, the, our skeletons change, our teeth change. Uh, we get different diseases. Um, there's a lot of stuff on plague that suddenly seems kind of relevant. Um, you know. Mm. That kind of stuff. Uh, but the, that's kind of the main body of the book. And then it turns out that I am incapable of being serious for the length of a full book. So I had to cram all of my side notes uh, and, and sort of humorous asides into footnotes, which on occasion take up an unreasonable amount of page space. Cool. Thank you so much for, for guesting on our show. This well, was really fun. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, we finally got to do this. I Hooray. Had a, yes, there's, there's a, a kismetic meeting of Anna um, the last time I was over uh, California way. And so I'm, I'm just very pleased that we finally managed to do it. Yay. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing you said early on about 
keeping illustrious people in your orbit. I try to, I try to just glom <laughs> on to folks who are interesting. So it worked out for us. As do we all, hence our continued connection. So there networks, 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 matter. networks matter. Thank you again to Dr. Brenna Hassett for appearing on the show. And thank you as always listeners for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, pretty much any place you get your podcasts. And if you want to find more of us, you can do that on social media. On Facebook, we're just The Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And on Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And all of that comes together on our website, thedirtpod.com, where you can also get merch, sponsor an episode of your very own, and check out more about what we have to offer. Thanks for listening. We love you. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.